Section 9 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Braden in Springtime, Part 3 A Native's Opinions Dinner ended and the houseboat locked up. We may as well get over Braden to Jari's houseboat which you can see lying at the entrance to Duffel's drain. I have stowed the sail and mast and put the oars inside too. I will quant her thither. If the tide were falling, I should make for the cross drain, which from the end of the rond takes a most sinuous course to Duffel's drain. But there is still plenty of water under us. My quant is somewhat like a boat-hook, minus the iron shodding, to which at half a right angle a wooden toe is fastened, to prevent its sinking in the mud at every thrust. Poor old Piero Pestle constructed this for my especial use. We will stop a little while with Jari, and gossip till the tide falls. We had scarcely fastened the punt to Jari's houseboat and stepped aboard, ere an open boat, manned by Snickerlan, his comrade Short and Page, and another old fellow, came up and hitched on their painter to the houseboat's ringle. They were up after smelts. Before the tide eases, they will have left us and gone right up the duffel's drain to shoot their net, which they do the moment there is ebb-tide sufficient to move it along downstream. For the present, they are ready to load their pipes and have a friendly draw, and are as ready as ever to discuss old Braden and the days of yore, not forgetting to wedge in many a grumble about the day we live in. Look here, said Snicker. Things is rotten nowadays. Braden'll never see the likes again. You think not, I queried. Boar, I know it, he answered dogmatically. Look how Braden's growed up, he said. Why, the tide's no sooner on the flats than it's off. Why, there used to be enough water at ordinary tides to sail about anywhere at low water. It's the silth and filt what done it. The what? The silth and filt. The mud from up river and the refuge from the town. It get in that old grass, the zostera, and settle there every tide. Can't get away. There's ten times more on it than there were sixty year ago. Now look here, I said. When you place an obstruction out in a tideway, it makes a corresponding eddy. Yes, he nodded. Well, when they built the dicky works, a sort of close-bordered jetty up there near Burney Arms, and drove the water from the two rivers meeting there into one common channel. It had the effect of deepening that channel, and the eddy pulled the silt round with it. Well? Well, I said, 
instead of the two rivers spreading all over the flats and keeping them down to an ordinary level they lost this scar and gained the silt i see what you're driving at said he but why didn't fish come up here as they used to where's the butts or flounders and mullet and such like we must go to the harbour for that i answered for since the north pier has been pushed out far beyond the south pier it used to be the other way about the flood tide has been set off taking the fish past the harbour to the benefit of those who fish in the ham beyond at galston the tide races out with greater force too on the ebb and deepens the river at the bar these things benefit those who do business in ships and we now get vessels in drawing far more water than in years gone by it's good for trade i added and bad for braideners he said bitterly well larn i said soothingly nowadays it must be the greatest good for the greatest number but it's hard on us braideners he repeated with emphasis some has to suffer yes i said it's vexing though it can't be helped you've seen a thing or two here in your time i added turning the subject ah boar i have said he birds i queried well i never done much in birds fish have been more in my line of course i've seen lots of swans and geese and all that and seen enough of em shot i've picked up french partridges up here in foggy weather and seen an old hare messed up trying to cross the flats i've took a rum fish or two up here jibed in shorten page the clinkiest cod i ever saw i got in a net just in the entrance of the norwich river and i once nabbed a turbot fourteen pound weight and made fourteen shillings on it law i ha got great herons so i have gurnets and dogfish why even old gants or gannets used to come on here arter yawlers many a time i've seen em pitch in and get em yawlers is half-grown herons you know grey mullet he continued why i've heard old calver once took a bootload on em and made eight pound fifteen shillings with the catch up in billingsgate you put that down in your book afore you know my best catch of them old mullet interposed snicker was in the bite agin the dicky works that's a place edged in shorten shut up ain't you said snicker turning on shorten my catch brought in about thirteen pounds which was about half what it would have brought in nowadays we ought a copped more only so many on em popped over the net back into braden i've had em jump over my head said shorten laughing your heed 
snapped Snicker. Why, you ain't more than three feet nothing in your water boots, though you've got as fat a head as anybody. I'll allow they can jump, though, and more'n once I'd known the lot to go over like a flock of sheep and leave nothing in the net. Nine pounds was the heaviest mullet as I ever took. Nine. Shut up, ain't ya? Nine stern, I suppose you've copped em, though I once got a sturgeon over eleven stern. I've got a skate as nearly pulled me overboard, and nice place used to come up now and again. I once helped to land a twenty-six pound conger, what got in a smelt net. Nice job, I queried. I should think so. My own mother wouldn't a known me for mud and filt when we'd settled his hash for him. You've known some queer chaps up here, I asked. Have I? he answered. Why, yes. I hain't been up here nigh sixty year without. There was old Bessie, Gaby Thomas. You knew old Boogles? Knew him? Why, yes. He was the superstitiousest old fool I ever knowed. Johnny Bloom he was, and took more barrels of beer down on him than I've ever smelt, though we might let the day rest. He couldn't abear frogs. He'd walk a mile rather than meet one, and when he used to go a-pickin' of a night in the deeks or ditches, he'd always hold his eel pick over his head to see as if he hadn't got a frog on, and lost many a good eel through it. If he upset a bucket of eels on the mesh or marsh, he doesn't for the life on him pick him up for fear of touching his finger agin a frog. That's quite right, put in Shorten. Without deigning to notice this interruption, Lan went on. You remember old Silky Watson? he asked. I just remember him, said I. Well, he was the snuggest man at a big gun I ever seed, and couldn't he swear? One day it was a terrible hard winter, and Braden was frizz all over, with only a wake here and there in the channels. Silky had spotted a parcel of ducks sitting on the ice at the edge. They were perched up three feet from the water. Old Silky laid low and began to scull up to em, when all on a sudden up went their heads, and in hid fast the next minute they dove. On turning round, Watson seed a big hawk, a peregrine, dashed past him, but, like him, the hawk had lost em. You say he swore, I remarked. Well, he'd been an old man of war's man, and you could hear him all over Braden, replied Snicker impressively. But law, times is altered. Look here, he said solemnly. With all them steam drifters going in and out the harbour, all the fish is drove away. My biggest haul of eels? Well, some years ago I made a dragnet. That were a bit of smelt net with a poke to it. Me and another 
went up to the fleet deek near dan bannam's knowing the hot summer had dried up the deeks to a few swales or isolated pools or puddles this was thirty year ago we was refused leave by one owner whose old sow was eating eels till she pretty nigh busted so we went further on without axin leave on the next property haul in the net one each side of the deek we filled two bushel skeps with them they couldn't help themselves as they rooted about in the swales till the slub was all on a work that year afore the rain came suffin like two hundred stun a day eels was found in the deeks have i had any bad luck why don't you remember me tellin you last november me and shorten and him took twenty-nine smelts for two days hard work and this is a fact on november the fourteenth and fifteenth nineteen o six the sum total was twenty-nine smelts for three men's work snicker came to me for a loaf almost broken-hearted snicker is sixty-seven shorten seventy him seventy-four poor old fellows and still toiling at their nets look come here interjected jarry we all looked and a pretty sight rewarded us eleven dainty black terns were rising and dipping as they came along the duffel's drain nothing more swallow-like in general appearance and in their manners could be imagined as they came tripping along now snatching at some insect or other on the surface of the water they could not be fishers and now swinging around and overhead without seeming effort we watched them going away to the northeastward mounting up higher as they neared the walls a parcel of little black fairies they'll be on hickland broad for dinner said jarry pulling out his pipe look here patson said snicker this undo do the blessed tides are fallen among the may birds may is pre-eminently the month of the birds in eastern norfolk for many species are expected which will spend the sunnier days in our midst while more are looked for as mere callers on their way to their northern nesting quarters some of the rarest of our british waders drop in to spend a short vacation on the mud-flats and it is now that their plumage is at its best one may's arrivals will differ greatly from another a fact for which the direction and force of prevailing winds are greatly responsible given a continuation of strong westerly or southwesterly winds and only the merest stragglers from the migrating armies are to be met with while with a succession of winds from the east and southeast the trend of the migratory hordes will favour this side of the german ocean and then it is that the naturalist sees much that may interest him a mere catalogue of the strange and interesting birds to be seen on Braden, even in these degenerate days 
by anyone who could spare hours to loiter about in the drains and by the mud-flats, would be far from uninteresting, and had there been trustworthy recorders in the old days, besides those who wrote their obituaries in blood, we might have possessed some delightful literature. Unfortunately, in the good old days, to go after birds meant less to watch than to kill. Glad am I that today the tendency becomes stronger to watch and admire, and the old spirit, too, of watching to outwit and slay, although still strong, grows less manifest. It is to be hoped that future bird histories will contain fewer and fewer notes of specimen shot with the date. It may seem strange that, notwithstanding the lament so often heard of birds becoming scarcer, that noble fellow, the spoonbill, Platalia leucorodia, taking one year with another, has visited us more frequently of late years than formerly. It is an exceptional year that does not see one banjo bill stalking about with easy gracefulness at the edge of some flat, spooning up shrimps and small mollusca, while little surprise is expressed at the sight of six or even a dozen of these birds dropping in to spend a few days with us specimen hunting. Were the Broadlands made a sanctuary, I feel confident this splendid bird would be induced to come and nest again with us. Occasionally, early in April, oftener in May, and sometimes until well into July, has the spoonbill been recorded for Braden. The late Fielding Harmer, in his Birds Shot on Braden Water, gives an imperfect list of some 45 spoonbills observed here between 1854 and 1889. Of these, more than half occurred in May, and one as early as March the 20th. But at least two-thirds of them are simply dated with the accompanying epitaph, Shot on Braden. It is noted that Mr. B. Dye has a fine specimen of adult female shot at Rollsby on March the 17th, 1888. The ovary contained one egg as large as a Barcelona nut. This is a very early record. In spite of closed season, quite a number are openly marked shot. Fortunately for Spoony, he may now venture here in perfect safety. Seventeen of these birds were feeding within half a mile of me at one time on April the 28th, 1901. For what reason the handsome little knot, Tringa canutus, in his summer suit of russet red, has forsaken Braden, I am utterly at a loss to imagine. Year by year its visits have become less frequent, and one is fortunate to see half a dozen in a spring. Fielding Harmer's remark that it is abundant both in winter and summer plumage does not now hold good. 
it must have been an exceptional year when as he states in eighteen sixty three in may they were abundant in summer plumage forty fifty and sixty were killed at a shot it is as a rule a tame and unsuspicious little creature and in autumn it severely suffers for this misplaced confidence the avocet that daintiest of all the waders now visits us only as the merest straggler why it should come at all is beyond my comprehension for it meets with a most hostile reception in spite of close season enactments and the careful and almost ceaseless vigilance of the watcher it is ever an eligible addition to a collection whether the collector has specimens sufficient or not for there is always a value attaching to its skin and a halo of conquest so to speak which unscrupulous shooters glory in wearing the slaughter of an avocet is something more to be boasted of than the shooting of a dozen woodcocks it may be the bird has an innate instinct transmitted through generations to visit the home of its forefathers or what is more likely it is borne half unwittingly hither by atmospheric causes at the period of migratory flight it is an experience for a naturalist to get within binocular range of this avine beauty on june the twelfth nineteen o five a flock of no less than nine put in an appearance on Braden, and i spent a most enjoyable evening in their company at seven thirty p m on the thirteenth i saw them in a compact flock on the wing they sailed around for half a mile and then alighted in shallow water the tide was just at the full and in a very short time they were floated off their feet entirely they swam with the buoyancy of tufted ducks which at a distance they greatly resembled as they bobbed up and down on the ripple with their heads drawn in i pushed to within a hundred yards of them and distinctly saw that they were swimming one and another occasionally popping its head under water as if to reach the bottom keeping the tail perpendicular by the aid of the feet as ducks do a small gull accompanied them apparently much interested in their movements and i have before noted that with the black-headed gulls stray avocets have been on the most amicable terms even remaining to sleep in their company as if satisfied that their vigilance and alertness to detect any sign of danger could be depended on even if they uttered no alarm note the patter of their feet when running to gain an impetus for flight makes sufficient sound to waken them my chum Di was with me in my punt straining his failing eyes to get but a glimmer of their presence so carefully sculling up to within thirty yards of them i put them up when they filed off in extended line coming between the setting sun and ben 
who to his intense delight caught their shadow as they crossed him they wheeled round once or twice and again settled near the lumps two or three other boats were hovering in my wake among them being that of the restless watcher for he was pretty well aware that concealed under the foredeck of at least one punt there lay hidden a fowling piece whose owner hung around far into the night with a fugitive hope of tiring out the representative of the law and of getting as local slaughterers put it a clip at em but i do not think success attended his efforts then although i am not so sure that the whole of the birds got safely away i notice one bird walked slightly lame as if it had been pricked by a shot the flock remained that friday night and until the following day in the afternoon of which a very severe thunderstorm broke over Braden, during which they disappeared this flock of nine avocets is probably the largest number that has been at one time on Braden for more than half a century the late fielding harmer writing in eighteen ninety remarks on the six seen on may the third eighteen eighty seven i have never known so many at one time to be seen on Braden. he writes and his acquaintance with that estuary dated back to 1854. It is noted that Fielding Harmer mentions but five. There were six, to my knowledge, and four were killed. Without the slightest doubt, many more rare species come to Braden than are ever heard of. Some may drop in to feed and rest at night, and are gone by daybreak. And among the flocks of commoner birds, there must often be strange sandpipers. The obtaining of pectoral and broad-billed sandpipers and other locally scarce forms has seldom been deliberate, as that of a larger stalk or a spoonbill may be. For unlike these, they so closely resemble, both in size and general appearance, such common species as dunlins, curlew sandpipers and the like that they have invariably been unidentified until after a promiscuous and random slaughter and here i must admit that but for the gun their presence would never have been detected and to my mind in this solitary argument the sportsman scores personally however i am content to remain ignorant rather than indulge in wholesale massacre for the sake or for the mere possibility of securing a rarity or adding a new species to the county fauna redshanks are merry enough on the flats in may whither they repair in the intervals of their household duties to feed and gossip with old friends who come later southward they will muster up in larger numbers in august when young and old gather together in quite respectable flocks i have seen a hundred in a bunch from the bure and waveney marshes the extension of the close season until september 
is a real boon to this species which formerly was sadly decimated by shooters who found it a ready target and easily decoyed within gunshot by the most imperfect mimicry of its call notes its habit of sitting on a rail and clicking is familiar to most people who know its haunts it has an odd way too of lifting its wings above head to their greatest extent as if proud of the length of its primaries the red shank persistently feeds in a chosen spot until the tide fairly lifts it off its legs and so daintily clean is it that it will stop feeding to put in position a refractory feather or wash the tiniest speck of mud from its plumage its cousin the green shank a far noisier bird comes in ones and twos in may and attracts attention by its restless and impulsive manners and whilst the red shank flies in a well-sustained and circular fashion greeny darts along with jerky suddenness hesitates a wing in dragonfly fashion and goes ahead again showing more white behind than you suspected it was wearing one never tires of watching the peculiarities of individual species and snugly ensconced in the well of our punt under the lee of the rugged edge of a tide-worn flat the patient watcher gets glimpses of ways and manners such as the restless never dream of sometimes these hunting parties will mix together right good-naturedly one touch of nature supper hunting making the bird world kin a party of dunlins resplendent in coats of variegated brown and black with vests of jetty hue come nimbly running along pick 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 as they move snatching at carophium and mudworm delving deeply for those that hide trilly piping the ringed plovers join them running and picking picking and running among them may be odd kentish plovers and little stints while you may hear too the wick wick of the sanderling which you may recognize most easily by its speckled gorget by some common impulse every little wader takes to flight it may be for a momentary spell of exercise or maybe some warning cry not understood by those hidden in the punt puts all to wing and after wheeling around with quite military precision of method probably deciding as they turn that it was a false alarm presently down they drop and at once scatter again to feed apparently with great hurry as if to make up for lost time you might almost imagine they fed by piecework if there be a breeze blowing you will be interested in observing them feeding head to wind and should one turn a moment to snatch up a worm it has unwittingly passed by and the wind ruffles some of its wing coverts how quickly it right about faces and attends to those disorderly feathers before beginning to feed again on taking to wing 
after a sweep round once or twice, they decide to settle in a new location. You will always observe them fly past where they intend to alight, swing round into the wind again, and then alight, retracing their steps to the spot selected, and with their bills pointing to windward, recommence feeding. When washed off the flats by a higher tide, away they hasten, either to the beach or the marshes, the larger waders retiring to the rons to await the ebbing of the waters. All of them seem to know instinctively when the water has fallen. The greenshank, when feeding, selects some isolated tide pool, or oftener a shallow creek, along which he walks. He would run, if he could, in a zigzag manner, snatching at frightened shrimps that hastily scurry to either side. He does not leave much of a creek unworked. The red shank often dips his head under water. I am confident on speck, before he has ever sighted prey. The dunlin, more especially on the softer ooze, shows his dislike to a muddy worm by running with it, dangling from his mandibles, to wash it in the shallows. You may see the avocet doing exactly the same thing, taking care that not a spot of mud shall soil his snowy breast. It is funny, too, to witness how a small wader, feeding at the extreme edge of a drain and blown unexpectedly into it, will simply let the wind drift him across it, scarcely attempting to paddle as he goes, and then, scrambling up the opposite side, begin at once to trot and feed as if nothing had happened. Other interesting birds that come in May are the godwit, the grey plover, the turnstone, and various terns. Rarer than either are the spotted shank, the red-necked phalarope, and the temink stint. A catalogue of all the rare birds that have been seen during this month must include the roseate tern and the black-winged stilt. Several dates are mentioned in connection with the black-tailed godwit, and its smaller relation, the bar-tailed godwit, was at one time quite commonly met with. I myself have seen seventy at a time, but it has never been my good fortune to see those great influxes the older Bradeners delight to make mention of. But fortunately, whereas the habitual Bradener may go day after day and lament the absence of this handsome bird, a stranger may casually look round the day after and see quite a mustering of them. The uncertainty of the thing adds piquancy to the quest. The smart grey plover, underclothed with deepest black and with variegated shawl of black and white, is commonly met with and almost surely begs the visitor's notice by his plaintive calling. He is, to my mind, when in tip-top plumage, as handsome a bird as one can meet with in a long day's march. The late Fielding Harmer, noting the black-winged stilt, remarks, I saw one on Braden, 
May the 19th, 1866. Very wild. Same day it was shot at on Caister Beach, but missed, and went away uninjured in a northeasterly direction. What a pity it is we have not a line respecting its manners and its doings. The whole entry seems to suggest the injunction, shoot it. Booth was the first to detect the white-winged black tern on Braden. Harmer says he saw Mr. Booth shoot four of them, all at one discharge, at 3 a.m. on May the 26th, 1871, where, seven years later, on May the 8th, two gull-billed terns were also obtained. In concluding this chapter, it may be as well to impress on those who should intend visiting this far-famed bird resort that May is, without exception, the most interesting month in the year. Arrangements should be made beforehand with some well-known Bradener to have his punt in readiness, and the flood tide should be chosen. If a southeasterly wind be prevailing, all the better. The fact that disappointment may follow makes good the old saying that the best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glay. Says Fielding Harmer, in 1866, May the 20th, and for three or four days after, Godwits and Knots were passing here in a northeasterly direction in thousands, followed for several days by stragglers. But, May 1887, only two Godwits were seen, and four knots shot. I myself have known a year to pass by without a solitary godwit being observed. End of section nine.